0: is the fall of Afghanistan. The Biden administration is still trying to contain all the fallout from the Taliban taking over there. One of the most pressing issues right now is the continued evacuation of Americans and Afghan allies, but there's several other storylines in this wide-ranging event. The Afghan war still remains unpopular with American people, but why didn't the administration act on the calls for evacuations from diplomats earlier? And then there's the matter of the Taliban itself. Is it at all possible to trust them? The Taliban want to project moderation and say they want good relations with the international community, but that's going to be a difficult balancing act. We've already seen them violently disperse protests and UN officials have warned of dire food shortages and that the country is severely in need of money. For more on all of this, we'll speak to retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Myers. He served as an intelligence officer with the U.S. Marine Corps for 28 years, and he's also the author of American to the Core a Marine Corps intelligence officer's incredible journey.
1: Well, first, just quickly a little background. Yeah, 28 years as an intel officer, and when I left active duty just over a year ago, I was actually on the joint staff as the director of, for the director of operations, which by relation meant the vice chairman and the chairman as well. I wouldn't say it was an intelligence failure. If you ask any soldier or Marine who you know, your brother, sister, or a friend, if they would trust their life to the uh, Afghan National Army soldiers, you're going to get pretty much the same answer, which is no. So really, it's a break. Or if you ask an intel analyst at pretty much any level what their analysis was of the capabilities or the willingness to fight of the Afghan army, you're going to get a pretty negative analysis as well. So really, the breakdown is that as the information goes up the chain from those lower-level trainers up through the general officer ranks to the politicians, it gets morphed, it gets tweaked, until you have generals being trotted out in front of committees saying that everything's rosy, the Afghan National Army is ready to stand on its own, when in reality that may not be the case.
0: Right, and that's what we saw, you know, when the Taliban moving in. I mean, there really wasn't much fighting there. The Afghan forces gave up pretty quickly. What about the pace of them moving in? Why did it happen so fast? Why did it seem like we were caught flat-footed with that?
1: Because the security collapsed. With a withdrawal that's not phased out and timed, and where you telegraph the end date and say, we're going to be out by this time. That gives the Taliban plenty of time and space to plan their operations for targeted for that time period. So they knew there was an end date, which is a critical mistake at any level, tactical level, operational, strategic. They knew what the end game was, so they made their move all around the country. And the, the nature of the Taliban being an insurgent force, it's spread throughout the country. It's in every village. They're all over the place, as we experienced through our conduct of combat operations throughout the countryside. So as soon as they saw that end date, they were able to start, start moving. And with the immediate withdrawal of the forces, there was really nothing there to stop them. And the, the Afghan National Army relies heavily on support from the U.S. military, both soldiers on the ground, but more importantly, air power. We basically taught the Afghans to fight like we do which you tend to do, and and we rely heavily on air power. So with their air support pulled, it just collapsed.
0: Let's talk about the, obviously, the biggest mess of all of this is the evacuations of Americans and Afghans that were uh, working with us there. The pullout of Afghanistan seems to be pretty popular still. According to polls, I think the Associated Press just had a poll saying that the majority of people still think it was, you know, that being in Afghanistan wasn't worth it. And they approve of Biden's management of international affairs and national security. But obviously the biggest bungle with all of this was not having that plan to evacuate people. Uh, And we saw all those dramatic scenes, obviously, earlier in the week. What's next for all that? The State Department is sending more people to process visas, but this really seems like the central part of it right now. The, The president said, we'll stay past August 31st, the pullout date, if we need to, to keep evacuating people.
1: I think all sides of the political spectrum agree that we should not be in Afghanistan anymore. It's been 20 years. So the real problem comes down to the execution. President Biden didn't really have an evacuation plan. It's more a withdrawal plan. So when President Trump left, he indicates that he had a withdrawal plan with phases and stages that can be yanked at any time if the the Taliban's not meeting metrics or not basically doing what we're asking them to do. I think the real gist of it comes down to the impression is that President Biden just forwent that plan, like no longer had a phased withdrawal plan and just jumped right to the let's pull everybody out, which is what caused the chaos. You need to distinguish between withdrawal plan and evacuation. Evacuation plan, that is managed by the State Department through a document called the F-77, which is supposed to possess the locations and names and data of all the American citizens in the country, as well as all the tactical data that the Marines need or the Army needs to come in and conduct the rescue, including specifics of the building and where to land helicopters and just everything. So what this really indicates is a total breakdown in the State Department's F-77 and their evacuation planning, because if the State Department spokesman is going on TV and saying that they don't know how many citizens there are or where they are, and that immediately tells you that the F-77 wasn't populated right. with the data it needed to be, and therefore an evacuation couldn't be conducted.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing reports of checkpoints by the Taliban and all, you know, not letting people get to the airport. The president uh, has remained steadfast in his decision to pull out and everything, but, it, you know, in a recent interview he said that Getting out of there with no chaos, you know, it couldn't have been done that way. But to your point, basically, if the State Department had prepared more for this, maybe the chaos could have been limited a little bit more, right? It was always going to be a, a problem getting out of there when our presence had been there for so long.
1: Absolutely. And the reason is the State Department F-77 and the evacuation plan includes multiple assembly areas, and points of extraction with a central location, such as the major airport or whatever is selected for the plan. So the fact that everything collapsed and all that's left to us is the Kabul airport, which is now encircled by the ring of death, they're calling it, demonstrates that there was no plan executed. If there had been a plan executed, you need multiple points. And the way forward to conduct this in a reasonable manner with limited risk to life and limb of all those American citizens is to have more than just the Kabul airport. In fact, I spent the last two hours, this is really shows the sad state of affairs that, uh, that a retired Marine living in Germany is trying to coordinate the extraction of interpreters and families with a informal Marine network. I mean, that really should not be the case. And that's what myself and my Marine compadres have been working on for the last couple of hours. So the situation outside the wire there at the airport is from my sources on the ground is is not pretty and right. the Taliban is, is basically deciding who will evacuate because they have the power over who enters the area and who doesn't enter the area.
0: That leads right into my next question. What happens after all this initial shock wears off? What happens after we've evacuated as many Americans and Afghans out of there? what happens when the taliban is just firmly in set there now we heard from some of their spokespeople earlier in the week promising peace uh, you know saying you know the war is over offering amnesty to people basically saying that we're different they even said made some overtures for women saying we want them to still go to school and things like that but i think uh, another spokesperson even said that they'd probably rule with sharia law and all that the question I, I hear all the time is can we trust the taliban i think the answer is pretty clear no but how do we work with them going forward how does that what does that look like
1: it will look about the same as it did from 1996 to 2001 the taliban is the taliban they haven't changed their stripes they didn't fight for 20 years and lose 200,000 100,000 whatever the number is fighters and go through all of that pain and effort so that they could just come down to Kabul and and forget about all those ideas they had. I mean, that's a farce to even consider that as an option. This collapse, this immediate withdrawal, the strategy that was used for this, I'm not even going to get into the politics of it, but the strategy that was used for it is no doubt the worst foreign policy move that's been made since Vietnam, if it's not worse than Vietnam.
2: And the reason is
1: we had, for the most part, throttled the Islamic radical terrorism movements. We had Al-Qaeda basically vanquished to the point where they now had to try to set up operations in Africa. In fact, Africa became the leading spot for Al-Qaeda and ISIS attacks a year and a half ago, I believe it was. ISIS was vanquished, and they also were trying to set up in Africa. Losing Afghanistan, basically giving it back to the Taliban 20 years later, we're restarting right where we left off. And all of those terror groups now have a base of operations, and they will all consolidate there. And, oh, by the way, we equipped the Afghan National Army to be one of the most well-equipped forces in the region. And by default, the Taliban is now one of the most well-equipped forces in that entire region.
0: Yeah, I think the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan earlier in the week said something like, well, we don't know exactly how many weapons they have there and all, but as you mentioned, the, the Afghan forces pretty much got up and left. So it makes sense that they have everything. Everything that the Afghans had is now in the control of the Taliban.
1: My answer to that, when people ask me how many weapons, is it really relevant? The answer is they have all of them. There's not a single weapon in the country that they don't now have if we brought it there and we gave it to the afghans then they have it now the way we i did this training all over africa as well and the way we usually train other nations is we train them on their organic weapons they already have and then we supply them with what they need to try and improve but across the board the forces that really get the high grade equipment are the special forces and there there have been some reports that a lot of those guys have gone out into the countryside and taken their weapons with them but it's so chaotic right now. It's hard to tell exactly what's going on, but yeah. the general answer is they have all of them.
0: Well, it's an ongoing situation. As I mentioned earlier, the most pressing situation is still getting Americans and, and Afghans that we're aligned with out of there. And then after that, the aftermath, the Taliban in power there in Afghanistan. We'll see how all of that develops. Retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Myers an author of American to the Core," a Marine Corps intelligence officer's incredible journey. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It's been my pleasure. Many COVID relief programs have been subject to fraud by scammers, but a whole slew of international scam artists have taken advantage of the enhanced unemployment benefits offered up to those affected by the pandemic. Russian scammers, Chinese hackers, and Nigerian scammers have used stolen identities, easily accessed from data breaches, and relaxed verification requirements to make bogus claims for COVID aid. The scams are so widespread, and we don't really know how much money has been stolen, but it is believed to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. For more on how these international scammers pulled it off, we'll speak to Kit Ramgopal, reporter with the investigative unit at NBC News.
2: Basically, it is kind of a perfect storm. Um, You've got $900 billion in unemployment benefits at this point, and um, the biggest bucket of scammers that are paying attention to it appear to be foreign criminals, disturbingly, according to law enforcement sources. Um, So as you said, we're talking sophisticated, organized criminal groups operating out of China, Russia, Nigeria, um, who really conduct these scams in a variety of ways. Um, One of the most common ways is making use of all of the social security numbers and personal data that are out for sale on the dark web. Um, which are extremely valuable in the context of unemployment insurance scams. Um, And they're able to move this money out of the country using payment apps and money mules. And honestly, a lot of this is uh, we're still pulling back the curtain on a lot of this at this point. Um, We're not sure in total how much has been stolen and what portion of that has gone to foreign criminal groups. But, um, you know, the rhetoric from. Law enforcement and officials on this is really clear and stark that this is, you know, one of the biggest fraud schemes that they've seen in a long time and um, an economic attack on the United States.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, these are sophisticated outfits, but the actual implementation of this was was pretty easy, relatively speaking. A lot of them exploited these new things that benefits for contractors and gig workers. You know, there was a lot of uh, easing of rules so that people can access their money a lot quicker. And some of these crooks were getting on a FaceTime using masks and other creative ways to fool some of these face identification stuff. But that's one of the ways where they're able to get in. Uh, so many rules were relaxed around this. That's how they were able to strike.
2: Exactly. Um, and, you know, the unemployment system in general had struggled with issues of outdated tech and weak verification systems for years, decades flagged by federal watchdogs over and over again. And then on top of that, you know, kind of already precarious situation, the CARES Act really tried to make benefits easier to access for obvious reasons. Um, In particular, they opened benefits up to people who aren't usually eligible, um, gig economy workers, contractors, the self-employed, which was of course much needed, but created issues um From a fraud standpoint, because there's no employer who can really verify those claims. It's basically built around self certification, the honor system um, and so, on that note, word spread that this is really,, as some scammers call it, easy money, and um, it's gone on for quite a while now.
0: I wanted to focus a little bit on uh, the money and kind of where states stand on it. as you mentioned, you know, we really don't know how much has been taken the FBI. Has 2,000 investigations open with all of this? They've recovered about 100 million. The Secret Service was able to get back 1.3 billion, but we're we're seeing numbers you know that far <laughs> exceed all of that. And uh, you talk about how some of this underreporting and all this stuff. So more than two thirds of states, 34 of them, said they they didn't have any cases of theft, overpayments, or anything like that. But that just isn't true. I mean, they, they, this is happening all over the place.
2: Yeah, the, the accounting for these sums is a, a really difficult process. Um, basically, we reached out to state agencies back in the winter and asked them um, how much they thought they had lost to fraud, and the vast majority of them simply didn't know at that point. Um, and, you know, the Inspector General for the Labor Department has said there will be at least $87 billion in misspent unemployment funds, which is a conservative estimate that assumes no spike in fraud rates compared to previous years. And, you know, as we're talking about right now, we know fraud did spike. So the question is how much did it spike and how much higher will it push that uh, 87 billion? And, you know, both the FBI and the inspector general declined to give actual estimates of what that would be. Um, An identity verification company, ID.me that's on the front lines of this issue in 27 states has you know, said publicly that they think they'll be more like $400 Wow. And that is obviously, as you were talking about, in really stark contrast to the Department of Labor, which has totaled up um, a little bit over a billion dollars across all states in these three CARES Act-related programs. And, yeah, as you had mentioned, there's a lot of blank data, a lot of underreporting. California, for instance, had only, you know, in the data, they are shown to only have reported about two million in fraud across the CARES Act programs, and that's after publicly acknowledging over eleven billion in unemployment fraud after a January audit. So there's there's a lot of pieces that still have to fall into place when it comes to getting a final number on yeah. this. And we yeah. probably won't have some for some time.
0: Definitely. Yeah. The question constantly begs itself though. So how do they do this? And you profiled, I guess there was a Nigerian fraud ring there called Scattered Canary. And they took some advantages in Google systems. They were able to make a bunch of different state unemployment accounts and that's how they were able to get the money. So how did they go about it?
2: They have gone about it in a lot of different ways. As you had mentioned, there is um, a lot of use of these, this data that is on the dark web and can then be repurposed for use across multiple states. Um, And on top of that, there's a lot of these fraudsters like um, the ones that have scattered Canary that then, you know, really share tips on how to get past these state systems on the dark web or on telegram channels. So there's kind of this body of knowledge that has grown around the weaknesses in state systems and that, you know, even as state systems now are uncovering them, there's so much attention that is spent on this from a criminal angle that, you know, even as the bleeding is stopping, there are still, you know, many instances of success, unfortunately.
0: In their case, they were able to take advantage of a quirk in Google system that doesn't recognize dots in email addresses. So they were mm-hmm. able to open up, you know, multiple email addresses that are very similar to each other. And that's how they went about it. And, you know, obviously, we know the money that's attached to everything, especially when, at the height of the pandemic where people were able to claim so much in extra unemployment benefits. I mean, they were making a ton of money. And then, as you also alluded to, transferring them to cash apps, sending it out of the country, changing it into Bitcoin. I mean, they had made a whole business out of all of this stuff. So yeah, I'm sure we'll continue to hear more about how the fraud was going rampant in all of this stuff, but you know, we'll, we'll continue to monitor all of that. Kit Ramgopal, reporter with the investigative unit at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.